Hi everyone, this is episode one and it's all about epilepsy. I'm Catherine. And I'm Andrew. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So this is episode one, a big week for us and for anyone listening who you get to uh, have the honour when we're playing big sellout stadiums in the future to say you, you were here for, for epilepsy, uh, episode one. I love uh, that, before... the idea was in the O2 or something, just yeah, like, each O2... just like a big like bow stool type thing, just you know, <laughs> beer in each hand. <laughs> yeah, sell out, sell out crying, waiting to hear our and others' thoughts on protection. Absolutely, um, <laughs> probably so, not the beers so... then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Before we get into that, Catherine, how are you? How, how, how's your last week been? It's, it's been good. It's been, as always, I'm sure with all of us, it's just been manically stressful. Work and kids, it's just been nonstop. The kids yesterday just seemed to, they just seemed to be on one. <laughs> it was a tough day, but I think there could be also a bit of a fall on because um, I, on Thursday and Friday, myself and Alan did the uh, mental health first aid training. Yeah. And it was two days of really intense kind of learning about mental health and um, different types mental health the different symptoms that maybe um, you will see how that could potentially be a certain diagnosis or basically how your reaction should be to it and obviously being a big advocate for mental health I expected I expected to be involved and everything like that but I actually found that it I became really involved and um, I was sharing quite a lot of my own experiences and sharing things that I don't generally share with people but it felt like quite a safe group and it was very very draining but just so incredibly important and it was there were so many fantastic techniques that we learned from that as well and hopefully we are now obviously that first line of kind of help if somebody really does uh if they're, if they're struggling possibly with some symptoms that they're not really sure how to manage but um but yes on a hopefully on a more jollier note you've had a, a bit of a better last week and a half than me I did something for the first time this weekend, which is always good, at the ripe old age of 41. So I've always lived around London, but this was the first time we went to Madame Tussauds, which is basically, oh. we're at the end of our family year of Merlin passes. So <laughs> just picking off the dregs. Um, and it's fair to say, as a good underwriter, I definitely preferred the bodyworks exhibitions, which we've done before, to kind of seeing... Ed Sheeran in wax, which is slightly less impressive. But as always with these days, they look very good on social media and let everyone else think that we're a perfect family who have great weekends. So, um, so, so we tick that box anyway. Fantastic. Um, yeah, 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 yes. So, yeah, back back to the back to the day job now. So, um, yes. Here we go. Well, we did, I was going to say, we did Madame Tussauds once. And I have oh, to yeah. say, I'm going to share this because I'm going to be shaming Alan here and I will shame him well and truly. It was when, I think it was one of our first anniversaries, so probably about 15 years ago now. And we went to Madame Tussauds and they had like this feature um, floor, which was like her, ter- um, terror horror house type thing. Yeah. And um, we decided to go through it. And I, quick thinking that I am, thought, right, there's two, we're in a set of four, there's two girls in front of me. They're really giggly and hysterical. I'm staying next to them because the actors will swarm for them. And Alan was just like, in his head, thought, hang on, Kay's rushing through this. She's not enjoying the experience. I'm going to hold her back so she can kind of just enjoy it a bit more. And inside, I was just like, and I'm shouting at him, what are you doing? And he was just like, you're not enjoying it. I was like, I'm clearly getting through this as quick as I can. And he was like, but we're not enjoying it. And so obviously the actors then, deliberately swam for me and I'm like screaming at the top of my voice I'm really sorry but if you jump in my face I'm going to punch you I'm so sorry it's an instinct anyway let's focus on, on epilepsy one in every 100 people are diagnosed with epilepsy in UK and the stat that I actually found really quite surprising is that one in every 220 children are diagnosed with epilepsy and that just seems like I feel like obviously everybody knows about epilepsy but I don't feel like everybody's 
that just seems like a lot of people that I would potentially come into contact with. Yeah, I agree. So I, um, well, the one in 220 is, uh, I guess, a powerful number for me because my children go to a one-form entry school with 30 children in each year, primary school. So you quite quickly do the maths and go, that probably means that there's a child there who has epilepsy. I, I, I will confess or if I need to confess at the start of this so I, I don't I've never seen anyone knowingly have an epileptic attack I know people who have epilepsy I agree it's it is one of those conditions that I think if you do see then it's obviously memorable the frequency of it is possibly underestimated um, yeah. and for me that's quite interesting in itself because I don't think it's ever almost been a really hot topic for underwriters or insurance. Another thing as well with epilepsy is that there's just been a recent change in the name of it, um, which I think some people aren't necessarily aware of. And I know sometimes, like even when we've spoken to people, I think there's still that kind of change of dynamic as to which version of the term that people are using. So so previously, I think a lot of us are familiar with the term grand mal and petit mal epilepsy. That would be sort of like what's been, it's been referred to for quite a number of years. Um, whereas now they're called tonic, clonic and absence seizures. But there are, this is again really surprised me there are around 60 different types of known seizures if you look to the future of of medicine the reality is is there's just going to be more and more of these subgroupings so whether it's heart attacks or cancer or whatever the kind of i guess the the labeling that goes on these things is quite broad um and then gradually as with epilepsy you you figure that well even though the attacks might look quite similar what's going on in inside someone is can be really quite different and the consequences of that can be really quite different it would have only been a couple of generations ago where the six, you know, you, you wouldn't have had mm. six different types, let alone 60. Does that make it just, it's just one of the things that I've always had a query about as well in regards to underwriting is the fact that we're able to diagnose so many more conditions and we can identify them so much earlier. I know it could sound a bit daft, but is that in a sense actually being kind of counterproductive to us being able to arrange these policies and do these applications because whereas before somebody may not have been classed as having epilepsy because they didn't fit specifically into the criteria um, or any other condition or something but now that we know that there's so many different types and so many different types of seizures they now need to say well I actually do have epilepsy and it's this type. It's important to remember sad as it is though sad as it is at times that underwriting isn't the most important thing in kind of medical advancements but <laughs> you know and you can sit there going oh this, this just makes my life harder kind of more at the there's a few more important things to go on in that journey that is an ongoing challenge so you kind of have i guess simple things like relabeling of conditions which ought to be a relatively straightforward mapping yeah um, but yeah the progress is really difficult where so for life insurance to to say this for the first but doubtless not the last time for life or critical illness or income protection you are underwriting today for typically the next 25 years yeah um, and so to do that you're generally looking at research that isn't you're not looking at the latest medical advancements you're looking at what's happened let's say 10 years ago so that you know that the side effects of that wonder new drug don't nothing terrible happens to etc so almost sort of the most modern research that in most cases unless it's absolutely certain would be taken in would probably be kind of 2000s research and then you kind of try to overlay that to all the changes you've just described which can which can absolutely create some difficult situations and some situations where you are into those individual consideration and actually needing to get full disclosure to get medical records potentially and to walk 
an underwriter through that process to get the fair decision at the end of it. Going back to sort of like some of the stats and that as well that I'd looked at recently, I'm not saying that this negates how many people at all died, but I suppose from a risk side, you know, point of view, you know, there's around a thousand people that die in the UK every year due to epilepsy. Now, obviously, I say not negating all them in those thousand people will have meant a significant amount to their families and everything. But from a business point of view, from an insurance point of view, that's really quite a low figure I imagine statistically for the amount of people that are in the UK and about I think it's about half of those are actually due to sudden unexpected death in epilepsy and I know that that's had quite a lot of resurgence and attention at the moment because there was the story recently of um, Amelia Roberts when her order of service was found by a woman called Harry Miller in her new office drawer and another thing that really shocked me was when we were chatting about this in the office and obviously we've got what was it, about 15 people 17 people in our office and um, out of those people two of them had actually known people who unfortunately died due to the sudden unexpected death in epilepsy and that that really obviously shocked me that you know even in that small group that we have that there was two people that had obviously had that in the people who were in a sense close to them i think the physical nature of the attacks probably means that people have a almost a primal understanding of of the dangers of this condition and, and then the very modern kind of overlay with the dvla once people have seizures or attacks if you're if you're of adult age, then your doctor will say that you need to send a letter to the DVLA and it'll typically be 12 months from your last seizure or until there's kind of diagnosis confirmed yeah. before you can drive. So I think almost those two separate things create quite a, um, I guess, a realistic conversation um, yeah. around this condition and around the risk of this condition. Uh, and as you say, yeah, the numbers, from so from an underwriting perspective, the primary decision here for most cases is whether it's acceptable at standard rates so the same rates that any healthy life without any medical condition would pay or whether there'd be a small extra applied but yeah. those are the two most common decisions for people with epilepsy and we'll come on to when those don't apply in more detail as, as, as I guess we talk through are you saying there's something wrong with me there's nothing different from me I, I kind of think that people with ep epilepsy there to so say that physicality of it makes them aware of it and 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 there are, you know, there are, as you would imagine, plenty of medical studies that will estimate that the increased risk from having epilepsy is kind of between about 1.5 and 4 times, depending on the type of epilepsy and, and yeah. how well it's being controlled at the time. But it's, it, as I say, it's those kinds of numbers. I think this is time for you to get your absolute underwriting cap on now, Andrew, yeah, and sort of like, tell us all, just let you loose. I will um, well, obviously, if you, I'll time you if you go for too long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I, I, I guess the aim, so, so to flag and to flag uh, what, what I or we are trying to do here it's certainly not to uh, explain in great detail what epilepsy is I mean it's fair to say that the nervous revision course for me on a Sunday night for these is likely to be going to NHS websites and charity websites and I think those are a good res resource for anyone listening to these sort of prognosis and decisions that come out of underwriting for these are the classic rubbish underwriting guide of standard to decline or standard to postpone certainly yeah um so, so to kind of go through that journey i think the bit the often the most difficult bit for underwriters and let's be clear the person who's in the middle of all this um is through that period of diagnosis but through that process typically most insurers would would give a postponed decision and there's yeah. pretty logical reasons for that because it may be epilepsy, it may be something else. Um, you're about to go and have scans of your brain, um, etc. So there could be a very early claim either for life criticalness or income protection potentially, depending on what's appeared. So that's a tricky 12 months. Um, once you're into a point where either a trigger has been found 
um, or the condition is controlled through medication um, or through any other way, then as I've said, in most cases there, the decision would be standard rates. You, you ought to be able to get standard rates. And there, the only sort of ratings will be if there's still a trigger present if the medication isn't working, um, i.e. you're still having a lot of attacks or still having very serious attacks when you do have them. Um, so can I just yeah. quickly jump in with that? So say like if, um, just as an idea then, so say if someone is on medication and um, they used to, they were having sort of like more like the tonic-clonic seizures, so the stronger ones, but say like they've not had them for a couple of years or something, but they're still having really regular like absence seizures. I mean, I know what we experience from our clients and I'll come on some case studies in a bit, but would you expect kind of a bit of like a consistent approach across the market or do you imagine that there is going to be quite a varying kind of response depending upon different insurers um sort of like viewpoints over it i think they, they yeah they can definitely still be variants i mean the i guess lifting the veil on what those what insurers are doing and seeing here epilepsy is quite a table driven ratings approach um so what the underwriter ends up looking at and and in fairness why this is a, a a condition that tends to be heavily underwritten by systems programmed by underwriters rather than probably physically seen by underwriters. Yeah. It does tend to end up being a table, which is time since you were diagnosed by epilepsy, um, number of attacks in the last year and, and type of epilepsy almost then within that spreadsheet, um, depending on what the latest research that that insurer or reinsurer um, has used, then then you may well get different outcomes. Um, again, in the specific situation that you've highlighted there, there potentially is some underwriter judgment going on as well in terms of whether whether the grand mal epilepsy or the tonic clonic, sorry, show my age, um, <laughs> uh, epilepsy is still whether whether you can take the view that that is effectively cured. Um, or whether that's still there and, and the the seizures are kind of minor, less less frequent versions of those. So I think that's where you can get very different decisions where people are almost diagnosing the condition differently. Okay. So, I mean, one of the things I was thinking as well, so as an advisor, I have a lot of people obviously come to us um, chatting about epilepsy and the different situations. Now, you know, we get a range of different uh, reasons. It could be that it's a genetic factor that's caused it, a brain injury, a tumor. Um, it could be the result of possibly um, quite heavy um, alcoholism. So, I mean, I know because it's what I do um, is that I'll need to know what type of seizures they have, the type of epilepsy, when they were diagnosed, and uh, what medications are in use, you know, say that cause behind it. So if I and obviously the regularity of the seizures as well. So say like if, if we are an advisor and we're coming to an insurer or speaking to an underwriter or something, um, obviously I appreciate that you say that quite a lot of it is automated now. So, I mean, sometimes it's going to go through those systems and not. But is, is there any kind of specific things that would possibly throw an application like out of the automation? What are the flags that would typically go, well, actually, that medication's now reached this dosage, or actually, they've gone from 10 seizures a month to 12 seizures a month, so now, now that it's at the 12, we're going to have to have somebody actually physically look at it. Uh, the rules in those systems are still being actively written by human underwriters, and the data that comes out of them is being analysed by human underwriters, so we're certainly nowhere near AI in, in any form of life insurance yet. So I guess the more complicated the case, the more likely it is to get referred, and 
I'll try and explain what I mean by complicated. What an underwriter would view as a simple case is someone who's had epilepsy for a relatively long time, who may have had a very traumatic start to their life with epilepsy, has now not necessarily experienced no symptoms or is on no medication, but has a controlled pattern. Um, yeah. and a predictable pattern so that's kind of the that's the good that's probably going to go through a system at standard rates opposite to that is the further you deviate from that the more likely it is to get referred so those will typically be either newer cases which are just outside this postponed period where you're still changing medication where there's still more attacks but there's a story that's saying this is being controlled quite quickly mm. or there's a trigger um, that probably a trigger has been identified um, and there's some question marks about whether it's truly epilepsy or not. So I think one of the challenges around this is, and, and, and in the long term for people with epilepsy and, and their health, is that epilepsy can mask other conditions. One of the things um, as well is that I know that because it's something that I'm always trying to explain to my clients that we all see one in a sense level of the insurers but then obviously i try and explain there's the reinsurers in the background the names that people aren't necessarily going to think of straight away when they think of insurers and that do how does it work then because obviously given your background and everything how does it work in regards to the reinsurer to the frontline insurer and how those kind of epilepsy guidelines and everything get sort of like washed together in that reinsurance in 60 seconds or less so, so <laughs> or trying to explain to my mum what I did for a job um, so, so reinsurers insure insurers um, in the UK life market there are typically kind of roughly two-year contracts so an insurer uh, which is the name of the company that you would buy your policy from would then give about well, between 50% and 90% of the risk to their reinsurer. Um, and in return, the reinsurer gives them, uh, promises to pay that much of the claim and helps them make sensible decisions based on lots of medical evidence. So in practice, back to practical, there are reinsurance underwriting manuals, uh, which have lots of global medical research behind them and really do drive underwriting in the UK market. So insurers can choose to, to do their own thing, but they have to explain to the people who are actually going to pay the majority of the risk why they are taking it. To materially change things it is those reinsurance underwriting manuals which where most decisions kind of originate from. It is subjective, I imagine, as well as an underwriter, because you know there are times that you know we'll even speak to the same insurer twice and we'll get completely different indications. And I, I think that's obviously probably not the right scenario and in a sense that shouldn't really be happening but I think it is that thing as well that sometimes it's it comes down to the thing if the underwriters are human too and you know sometimes they're going to have different opinions or you know maybe they've just I don't know learned it in a slightly different way for that condition to pay potentially someone else it's um it's it's difficult yeah. sometimes to know what to do though as obviously we in our company in Cura we have built our way and our business model around to work alongside that and we know so you know like if someone gives us a an indication for for someone with epilepsy and we know it's not right then we will just go you know we'll double check it because it's a case if we'll hang on a minute we just you know we had one that, not for epilepsy we had one last week where someone had um, spoken to an show and they were indicated standard and immediately obviously one of the senior advisors just said that's not happened no 
you know that is completely untrue that's um, not in a sense not untrue but you know that's just that's just not going to happen in a sense and you know being the the other advisor immediately ran back and was going through all the underwriting and um, again and then we're told that it was um, at the very least a plus 150. It depends on the case right there are there are there are going to be some decisions which are simply wrong or unreasonable um or you know unfair or whatever label you want to put on them i think the vast majority of times where there are differences though are going to be just like if you see two 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 different doctors and they take a different view of your of your symptoms or your treatment and you know actually knowing which one is in inverted commas right or wrong it's really hard we don't necessarily have it with epilepsy but we have it with other and i'm not but it could well happen with epilepsy people who've recently been diagnosed with hiv where they do come to us and they'll say mm. things like i've got life insurance um but you know they'll say like i've been diagnosed with hiv i need to get new life insurance and immediately we go hang on let's just you know let's not get rid of the original pre-diagnosis thing and i'm not saying that that once I, I can't think of that specifically happening with epilepsy but i think it possibly could happen at some stage, especially when you're looking at things like critical illness cover, maybe even income protection, people possibly start to get the maybe get a little bit confused and I don't know I wonder if that's maybe more I don't know whether or not that's people doing things directly and not having things explained to them I don't know if it's kind of insurance documents or even though I can't think I don't think there needs to be any more explanation insurance documents because they're already so <laughs> so <laughs> hefty yeah, I mean, away compliance departments now compliance people please do not <laughs> add any more jargon <laughs> to these documents you know yeah I agree that it, it, it happened to my so my brother-in-law got diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis earlier this year and he was absolutely Ooh. halfway through cancelling his policy by the time you know and you suddenly got there and went no and i did that yeah kind of slow motion <laughs> run to the computer to kind yeah. of uh, uh, yeah i don't i don't know in the same way in the same way you'll try not to tell me how to do my job i'll try not to tell you yeah. how to do yours um but it, it i guess it must get kind of not get emphasized enough through some sales journeys that this is a this is a, this truly is guaranteed you know and in the same way that the classic kind of well if you chose if you genuinely chose after taking up the policy to take up this hobby or to go traveling to this place that would be fine you would yes. still be covered exactly the same for these for these conditions is yeah whatever you do don't cancel policies just because you're diagnosed with a medical condition and i guess as well there's lots of things that you can get access to if you have these medical conditions, um, which are, you, you may have experience of. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am um, uh, obviously. I probably, I'm sure everyone probably knows. For anyone who's listening to this and knows me on social media, will know that I um, have obviously a few different insurance policies. As you can imagine, I'm insured quite well. Um, even though I do have medical conditions, I still manage to get the insurance. But um, I have a lot of the value-added services now. So you know, I've used Square Health. I've used Red Arc Nurses. Um, I've used um, sort of like the on-demand um, GP services that are available with some insurers, some of the insurers, and they are incredible. You know, when I'm chatting to people, I forgive well, what I think is one of my brilliant examples is I was doing a policy for somebody and it comes down to that whole thing of being able to, having been advised and being able to give somebody that advice and also not just going for the cheapest policy. Because I had this option for this person. I was like, right, I've got two options for you. This one's 30p cheaper. But before you think, yes, I want to go for the 30p cheaper option, you know, sort of like the, the cheapest option gives you the insurance policy. The one that's 30p per more 
you know, per month. So £3.60 per year is going to give you, your family and children, access to on-demand GP services, nutrition support, you know, um, counselling, um, emotional support, um, all these things that I was just like, really, to have an on-demand almost you know not private gp but on-demand gp service mm -hmm. especially i mean the nhs is fantastic but i don't think there's anyone who has I, I don't hear anybody say that they've got one where they can get like an appointment within a couple of weeks you know it's unless it's really sort of like more of an emergency appointment um you know where we are it's easily that you could be waiting four weeks before you can get a gp appointment so to have that on hand is just absolutely fantastic and i yeah. think you know, when we're looking at these policies, it, it does come down to, for a lot of my clients, in all fairness, and I do say this, for a lot of my clients, the support services aren't the deciding factor. If I had people who were going straight through on online applications, um, then yes, support services would probably be um, the one of the most, um, or possibly the most important thing that I would be considering when I was advising um, my clients. But for me, it's, it's not a case of often having that luxury of a good, 10 15 insurers to look at or whatever or whatever comes upon the um the comparison sites and everything not, well the, i'll set the advisor comparison sites not your general comparison sites that you would just see as a general consumer um but you know i usually have to pick from a, a very small pool maybe it could be two or three insurers or it could even just be one insurer at which point my hands are tied in regard to the sports services but i do think they are things that if if an advisor is sort of like on sorry the benches to whether or not they see it as something important for their clients or not i would say just really do look at the those kinds of experiences or even if you want to give me a shout there's myself there's alan there's a number of people in my organization who have used these services and have seen practically how useful they are but I just want to jump back for a second as well, Andrew, if it's okay. Because you were Can saying, I, sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, just just on that, I think, um, so, so someone I know at the moment is is going, is sort of six months in from first first going to a GP for epileptic seizure or for seizures. Yeah. And is now, I think she's about a month away from going back for a sleep deprived EEG, oh, wow. which um, she's mainly annoyed about because she's now too boring to have fun all night. Oh, um, so she has to stay up all night, which in her twenties would have been fine. But in her thirties, yeah. I can't even do anything. I just have to stay awake. Um, but I think, in terms of support services, you look at that journey, and, and almost you know for epilepsy specifically. So she's she falls into that classic, dare I say, it, and again the usual hugely positive stuff about the NHS. But her seizures are mild nocturnal seizures, but they're enough that. She's had, you know, she can't drive, she can't drive her kids around and all of that. If there was any way of speeding up that process, even by a week or a month through that, yeah. by having a slightly earlier GP appointment, by, by, you know, all these different things, yeah. that would be life-changing to her. Oh, um, absolutely. So, so, so I think, yeah, it is that there are many practical examples where that comes to the fore. Oh, absolutely. Sorry, no, no, I was going to say one of the things that, um, just from what you were saying, it just like trick something in my mind in a sense is that um you were saying about someone you know takes out a policy and then if they suddenly start taking up like a dangerous sport or something it's later in life with and they hadn't had the original intention in a sense that in a sense it's okay so another thing is it's that kind of it's difficult i think as an advisor and if it's difficult for as an advisor it's definitely difficult for a consumer if they're doing it direct is it's that kind of fine balance of what is an intention you know, it's so, you know, I've spoken to people before and they'll say to me, oh, you know what, um, in a few years time, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to go live in, you know, Spain or something. I just want to go live in the sun. 
And then it's a case of, you know, as an advisor, you have to stand back and go, well, okay, so what do you mean by intention? You know, and then it's a case of, well, what do the insurers mean by intention? And what do I class in my head as intention? Because, you know, is it the fact that they're saying, oh, in, you know, three years time, I'm going to go live in Spain? Well, is that actually disclosable? Um, because, you know, it'd be interesting to hear your point of view because it's, it's just like, well, it's something that could, ha could may happen in three years' time. They've got this vision. I know someone who definitely would like to go live in Australia. You know, is that actually going to happen? Or is that just kind of like a a dream that you have, you know, sort of that says, oh, I'm going to go and, you know, do this in a, a few years' time or whatever? Um, is it the fact that, if would you, is it more a case of if somebody actually has the plane tickets booked and they've got the the accommodation being built or you know they've <laughs> they've already started looking for jobs and everything like that when does that line between kind of intention and actually doing when does that come into play so yeah it's, it's kind of timely to talk about it so what we start of February 2020 so just after Brexit and I guess this this um this podcast is two people from different sides coming together yeah. um and I, and in the spirit of that I think I genuinely think that actually there's, there's so many people who would around that have done it well if Brexit happens then I'm or well if Brexit doesn't happen then I'm leaving the country or whatever absolutely and, and you would say that you know uh, I guess uh, semi-flippantly um and, and almost work back from there I think the practicality the, the most practical answer is that um, an underwriter or probably in reality a claims assessor looking for misrepresentation, non-disclosure, you know, whether the claim is ultimately valid, is going to be looking for some kind of hard evidence that some steps have been taken. Yeah. So uh, you would definitely need to tell us if there is a contract of employment or I would say if you are going for interviews for jobs in other countries um, yeah. because, frankly, that is evidenceable um and would you know would be discovered whether that's you know that you're going to work in a, on an oil rig in a different place or, or, or whatever yeah. um i think the yeah the looking at websites of other countries and wishing you were in australia in in february is is quite realistic and and again if you weren't doing that um i'd probably worry more about you yeah. um so 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 it is i think it's whether you have started to take uh, actions towards that happening would be my um, my rule of thumb for it. Um, yeah. It is worth it. You know, I'll do the the first small print of these. It is worth <laughs> the individual insurer, but but often having sat there, probably back to more the proper tone of this podcast, sat there as an underwriter, you do often kind of wish that people had never told you things. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I just, I'm going to edit that out. I'm going to yeah. out, let's, let's check with the underwriter and then just put it's it in sort of like yeah. to just go straight to saying, I wish as an underwriter you just not yeah. told me anything because, yeah, wow, Andrew yeah. said it now. That's it. Secret life of an underwriter. Absolutely. Just don't tell it? me anything. Yeah, now, now I have to deal with um, this kind of, oh, well, I might possibly do this, that or the other. Um, yeah. And yeah, you, you end up with some pretty, pretty, harsh decisions right if, if you're kind of doing the, everything I've ever thought of doing absolutely well if it's okay with you I want to give a couple of case studies just because yeah. obviously from an advisor side things you know and also I think as seeing these decisions I'm not saying that I'm going to maybe revolutionize and spark something in all the insurers in the land but it could just be I think it's healthy sometimes for insurers to hear other insurers offerings as well you know which can be good sometimes and um, but mainly for advisors just to sort of give that detail out there that you may have somebody maybe sort of like an extreme situation of epilepsy that you may be a bit you may think 
I'm not sure if I'm going to get anywhere with this. And I just want to use these examples to sort of like show to sort of like don't give up that there are options. So the first one I wanted to talk about is um, it was a 36-year-old male that we know, and we know him personally as epilepsy. So um, 15 years prior to coming to see us for his life insurance and critical illness cover, he'd been shot um, in the head twice whilst he was on tour in Iraq. Um, incredible guy, um, now has a family, has children. Um, considering he was a paratrooper, he's one of the softest people that you could ever see on me. It's just incredible. He, I, I think I completely demasculinated him the other week when I spoke to him. So I was like, I can't imagine he was a big, burly paratrooper. And I'm thinking afterwards, shouldn't have said that. But anyway, <laughs> so um, he was left with obviously epilepsy. He'd been in a coma for a bit as well for four weeks, but um, he has. Um, he had the nocturnal seizures. He'd not had any for five years. He was on steady medication. Um, at first, he was paralyzed on one side, but now he's only left with slight weakness on one side, but he's really active. Um, he likes to do kickboxing. So when we originally did the research, I'm not sure what people are probably assuming when they hear that. So um, we did have um, some, which some insurers were saying it would have to be referred to the chief medical officer. We also had some people who said it was potentially standard to a 50% rating, possibly with a paralysis exclusion. So that's obviously a massive difference yeah. in the types of offering that are um, out there. What I'm really pleased to say, though, is that we actually did manage to get him um, the life and critical illness cover arranged at both at standard terms, which I don't think many people would have started hearing that story and would have thought that that would have been the outcome you can't judge what one experience of epilepsy is compared to another so as an example i've got another person to to just explain to everyone so we had here um a 40 year old male with epilepsy so um 20 years prior to us he had been drinking quite heavily around 160 units per week and it went up to 240 units um per week so um he'd stopped nine years ago um and he had developed um temporal lobe epilepsy he was on medication and he was still having quite regular um, seizures. Uh, I think there was more the absent seizures. Um, there was no of the none of the tonic clonic or grand mal seizures for over ten years. He had been, I say, sober for nine years, and very, very strictly sober as well, to the point where, you know, he wouldn't even eat food if it had been cooked in alcohol or anything. He was absolutely adamant that that, you know, he just wasn't going to mm. touch a drop of it ever again. His liver function tests had been consistently normal for a while. And again, we did research. All your standards, in, in a sense, like standard names, everybody declined, wouldn't touch it at all. I think primarily as well, obviously, because of the amount of alcohol that had been used in the past, even though the liver function was now um, okay. I think that had been a concern and the amount of seizures. We were able to find and ensure that we were able to offering these shows at um, a plus 250% on life. Again, I think a lot of people would have probably listened and thought yeah. this is probably, you know, when I said decline, probably everyone going, yeah, it's going to be <laughs> probably decline most places. But it is having that kind of uh, knowledge and ability to go around and speak to different insurers. Um, and also, I have to say, and, and we always do it in a very respectful way, I, I will say this, um, but we do challenge decisions as well, because sometimes, and I wouldn't say if it's a new condition that we sort of like we've across we've never known about we're not exactly going to go in guns blazing challenging insurers but if it's something that we are very aware of and we know of sort of the the general decisions that are going to be available in the market and different things if somebody is giving us quite a, a high indication then we'll probably say well how come why why is that with you compared to xyz over there who are 
obviously potentially looking at a much more favorable option you know just can you but just for even if for information purposes just say can you just in a sense educate me and let me know why because then in the future i'll know that this is in a sense your stance and to possibly know what to expect even though i may come back again and ask in the future in case obviously the background manuals have changed at all a relatively easy thing about epilepsy to underwrite specifically and obviously there's other factors in that second one but is is the symptoms are so physical um that, that there's less risk of there still being something underlying and i think that's that's what enables us to get quite good decisions for epilepsy whereas maybe yeah. for other conditions you'd still be thinking you know you take sort of more coronary, coronary decisions or things or things could still be building up inside um i think with epilepsy you, you can get more confident um that that that, that has at least stopped yeah, um, I was going to yeah, say though as well. I was going to say as well. You may, you do, you just say that obviously ten years ago everyone would have declined. Well, that yeah, depends. I was going to say yeah, yeah. that's what cure was there for. And it's an yeah, I guess difference between declining and postponing someone, which I've probably been guilty of being quite lazy about in the past. But you know, in both of those cases, I think if you wind the clock back, let's say ten years ago. Um, all all insurers would have declined them because of where they were at that point. Well, that yeah. depends. <laughs> I was going to say yeah, yeah. that's what Kyo was there for. So I'm being very conscious here that obviously people may come back and listen to this um, a few months down the line. They may catch it wherever. But um, we, I believe, Andrew, you do want to talk about something that's quite topical at the moment. We are aware. So so this is, as I, said, as I think I've said before, this is being recorded February 2020. So at the moment, the news is all Brexit and coronavirus. We are a topical podcast around all issues underwriting and, and uh, risk that it'd be worth at least mentioning what what insurers do about things like that. Um, the short answer as of today is nothing has changed. The insurers choose to ask questions and when we set those application forms and when insurers set their prices, they know that there will be even more widespread or increases in severity and mutates in severity to something different, then I think it's realistic to expect potentially different questions to be added to applications um, or different approaches to be taken. But at the moment, all you need to do as an applicant is to answer the questions as, a, as an advisor or, or anyone um, in that part of the process to ask the questions um, and that shouldn't result in any different decision being made. So as, a, so as an advisor then, just thinking, I say I have a client come to me and they have just spent the last three months in China and they've come back the last week or so and they've come to me. I mean, obviously the likelihood is very unlikely, but just as a, an example, you know, they've come to me and they've said, right, I want life insurance. So when I'm detailing the application, I will need to say, that they have been in China for the last three months or so. Is that, do you think there's a potential that all of a sudden that may be kind of triggering some kind of a flag that I'll then have to answer more questions about the exact region they were staying in? Uh, it's always in theory a reason to have automated applications rather than rely on paper applications. So, you know, in the old days, um, about five years ago, um, it's very, very, very hard in these examples uh, because to change a paper application would take about 24 months yeah so as of today i mean potentially companies could reprogram and change questions i don't think that anyone will be doing that urgently today but i imagine there will be some discussions about 
checking you know checking those risks so we're obviously coming towards the end of the podcast so please do keep listening everybody because we have a little bit of a teaser so we wanted to try and do something think of something to entice you all to come back even i'm assuming that you're going to want to do that anyway seeing as this has been absolutely fabulous we are going to do a truth or lie feature now myself and andrew one of us is going to say a truth and one of us is going to say a lie and uh, we may even do a social media poll to see if you guess which one of us is lying, which one of us is telling the truth. This is going to be really interesting, actually. Underwriter voice and advice voice. <laughs> Who, <laughs> who's, who's the, the devious? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, Andrew, would you like to go first with, um, with yours? Yes, okay. Um, so, <clears throat> my interest in all things medical began when I was five years old. And I chopped my middle finger off in a deck chair that was being used to hold up my mini snooker table. Okay, I love that cough though that you did at the beginning. It, it did sound like you were really preparing for it. <laughs> <laughs> right, so my thing is, this, I'm going to try and pronounce this right now. I, ha- um, I have thalassophobia, which is a fear of dark water and have never been on a boat. Yeah. So good pronunciation. Really? I don't Thank know whether you. it's true or not, but good pronunciation. <laughs> I feel like I was trying to read a Pokemon name or something that my kids are suddenly brought to me. <laughs> yeah, I think this, this is just a service for any underwriters who you ever phone up describing a pre-sales inquiry to, so they can they can monitor your voice. Uh, if, if they take ten of these, they'll know which ones you're lying on, not that you ever yeah. <laughs> the inflection in my voice. Yeah, yes. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. Yes. Are you telling us everything, Catherine? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do. I promise the, I do. Yeah, so, so as Catherine says, we'll, we will reveal all, or at least the answers to those at the start of the next podcast, which um, should be with you in a couple of weeks. But, but for today, thank you all so much for listening. I hope that you've um, made it this far and we really hope that you found it useful. Um, if you have any questions that you want to discuss or if you want to disagree with us or, or any comments at all, please, please do contact us. Yep. Um, and I think, Andrew, you said you're quite happy for people to disagree with you if I remember from the pilot episode. So if anybody wants to disagree with Andrew, do send those in. Please don't disagree with me. I'll just ignore them. I won't really. <laughs> but we will be back in two weeks. And if you'd like a reminder of the next episode when we're going to be chatting about rare diseases, please do drop us a message on social media or visit our website which is www.practical-protection.co.uk and uh, yeah I'll get all that out to you as well on social media and get up our poll as to whether or not which one of us is um, lying and which one of us is telling the truth so there we go so thank you very much everybody cool cheers all bye bye